Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Can I tell you what a joy it is to be your pastor? And I mean that sincerely. I really love you guys. And I know you love us. You have shown that to us over 10 years. And it's just been an amazing ride with you guys in ministry together in Butler, Pennsylvania. And many of you aren't even from Butler, Pennsylvania. Some of you come from pretty long distances, Leechburg area and Grove City. And, you know, it's, it's a, I realize it's a major taxing event to get up early to get your families ready and be here, but I want you to feel honored in being here because we do honor you, and we appreciate every one of you, and, and again, it's a joy to get up here every week to, to preach the Word of God, and hopefully it resonates with you in a way that it helps to bring you further along in your faith in Christ and, and works through you in a way that helps for life transformation. Um, over the past few weeks in this series, we've been looking at dysfunctional families of the Bible. How many of you have a dysfunctional family? Okay, here's the clue. Everybody has a dysfunctional family. Everybody is on the chart of dysfunction. You may not have a ton of dysfunction. When we think of dysfunctional families, we think like really off the charts, crazy, whacked out, and a lot of problems. But dysfunction really is a result of the fall in the beginning of time, when sin entered the world. And there is no family, nor is there any individual without sin in their lives, okay? Thus, the reason for the dysfunction in families. And we've been looking at several different families of the Bible that are dysfunctional, some more than others, but dysfunctional nonetheless. And in this series, we've been trying to understand how did God actually use them in spite of their dysfunction, because there's hope that is laden within God's word when we see the people that he worked through and used to do some of the most monumental things throughout the course of human history. And so today, we come to the family of Jacob. And Jacob had multiple wives. And multiple wives was not something God had planned from the beginning of time. We know the first person in Scripture to have multiple wives was Lamech, a descendant of Cain. And you read about him in Genesis chapter 4, and you realize he was a bit of a jerk. Seriously, it's just a little small piece at the very end of chapter 4, if you want to read about Lamech. He killed somebody for hurting him. <laughs> this guy hurt me. And so he killed him. And he said, uh, I'm just really paraphrasing here, read it for yourself. But he said to his two wives, listen, O wives of Lamech. <laughs> Isn't that great? I've said that to Sarah. Listen, wife of Brendan. <laughs> Actually, I've never said that, and I don't ever dare to say that because I love my wife too much to do that. Listen, O wives of Lamech. If Cain, if there was a mark on him that people who would kill him would be cursed seven times over. Let people be cursed 77 times for trying to kill me. I don't know. Again, paraphrase. Check it out. So if polygamy 
in multiple spouses was not something God designed, then why did God not strike it down? Because God works through foolish people to bring about his good works in spite of their foolishness. And sometimes, even though God may not call it out, the consequences of the actions speak for themselves and are punishment enough. And you'll see that today in Jacob's story. God never advocated for multiple wives or multiple spouses at any time in human history. This was a human manifestation of the fallen nature that started to take play in multiple cultures in that time period and even in multiple cultures today. My wife and I and our family sponsor two children in Uganda whose families are of Muslim origin, but they go to the Christian school that we are sponsoring them to go to. And they are learning about Jesus Christ. But in the Muslim family they're a part of, the husband has multiple wives. And so each of these brothers are half-brothers to two different women. It is a part of still different cultures across the globe today. My hope is that as these children that we've been sponsoring since 2013 are growing and we're writing them letters and we're seeing the favorite Bible passages and how God is working through their lives, that they will change and be different. So let's look at the story of Jacob today. And I want to talk about specifically this theme of favoritism. How many of you love to play favorites? How many of you have felt like other people have been favored over you? Come on, it's okay, right? If you were a sibling, you probably thought, well, my other sibling was more favorite. My kids, I told you, have a ranking in our home of who they think is favored the most. And so for dad, they think that it's this child first, this one second, this one third, and this one fourth. And I can only imagine why they've structured it that way, because they think we're playing favorites, and they do the same for my wife, and her list is in different sequence, okay? But it's not true. Each of them are my favorite. And that's not a cheesy way to say that I love them all equally. It's just true. Here's the deal. We love them equally, but differently. And what you might see as different, you would consider as being unequal. But not everybody receives love the same way. And you notice that about your children. Each child is uniquely different. One of the things we learned is uh, when we started having kids is we thought there would be a pattern in how they responded to different stimuli throughout the course of their lives. And they all respond differently to different things at different times. They all have different anxieties over different things. They all have different likes and dislikes. I mean, it is just crazy how different each of our kids are. Yes, they're similar in certain ways, but for the most part, they are vastly different. And so in that vast differentness, loving and parenting those kids, we had the same values, the same boundaries, but we approached them differently. And so what they see as us playing favorites is our addressing them at a level they can understand and they can hear. Okay? Does that make sense? And some of you parents probably understand exactly what I'm saying. And... Uh, you get where I'm going with this. Uh, I want to tell you a story leading into uh, our scripture today. There's a wonderful story about a Chicago bank that once asked for a letter of recommendation uh, on a young man uh, from Boston who was being considered for employment. The Boston Investment House could not say enough about this young man. They wrote him a glowing recommendation. 
His father, they wrote, was a Cabot. His mother was a Lowell. Further back was a happy blend of Salton Stalls and Peabody's and other of Boston's finest families and historical families. His recommendation was given without any hesitation for this new job. And several days later, the Chicago bank sent a note saying the information supplied was altogether inadequate. It read, we are not contemplating using the young man for breeding purposes, just for work. Is it a good, good old boys club in God's kingdom? No. Everybody is on equal playing ground or equal ground together. At the foot of the cross, we are all at a level place. And we meet Christ at the same place. In reference to his ministering to a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, Peter learned that God truly has no favorites. It was thought even after the early church started and Jesus had died and rose from the grave uh, and, and proved who he said he was, he ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came. When Peter and the rest of the apostles started going out and ministering the gospel of Christ, they still weren't sure about this Gentile believers. And so there were debates going on in the early church. Do we have the men continue to get circumcised as by the Jewish law? Do we have them abide by the dietary laws, not eating shellfish or anything that slithers on its belly or any cloven-hooked animal, blah, 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 blah. And he started to realize that, no, actually, God is not... It does not favor any one group over another. That Jesus came as the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that through his descendants, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And so this fulfillment of that promise came true in Christ. And when Christ came, what the people of God, the Jewish people, had neglected and or failed to do to bless the nations, Christ did perfectly through that line. And he brought salvation, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And you say, well, who is a Gentile? A Gentile, as easily as I can put it in this context without any scholarly garb, is anybody who was not a Jewish person. Now, you, they were mainly Romans and Greeks that were considered Gentiles because they were the dominant population of the time. But there were also people called barbarians and Scythians. You know who they were? They were more the Germanic European tribes from which Europeans descended. And so back in that day, they were the white people. And generally, most people, scholars, believe that the book of Galatians is written to those groups of people, the barbarians and the Scythians. They had a whole different context of life and culture that was different from the known cultures of the Greeks and the Romans. That's just a small little history lesson just to make you happy or put you to sleep, whichever works this morning. And so God is no favor, does not favor one group over another. The salvation message is for all people at all times through the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. No matter what race, what, what ethnicity, what gender, and there are only two, if you're here, do you think I'm different? It's, okay, let's not get into the debate. We are of the traditional stance that that's the case. That God is the God who is for all and desires all to be for him. And the only way that can happen is through Christ Jesus. 
okay? And so we go on today to look at this timeless story of Jacob. And buckle up, because this is crazy. If you've read it before, it bears reading again or hearing it again, but I'm telling you, it's better than days of our lives or, you know, or any of the soap operas you might catch on TV. Check this out. I'm thinking some of our soap operas over the past decades have been modeled after Jacob's life. Okay? We call it Jacob's Ladder. No, I'm just kidding. Jacob's Wives. <laughs> All right, here we go. Buckle up. Genesis 29, starting with verse 31. Before we get there, hang on. Jacob, you remember he was a trickster, that he had a twin brother, fraternal brother, named Esau. And being a trickster, and his mom being the trickster, Rebecca and Isaac, you know, remember Rebecca and Isaac. Rebecca was a bit of a trickster too. She played favorites with Jacob, and Isaac played favorites with Esau, legitimately. And there became this division. And Jacob stayed at home, did most, most of the stuff around the house. Esau was this hunter and gatherer. He'd go out and do his thing. And uh, Isaac was specifically to bless the oldest child, to carry on the blessing of the family in the covenant relationship with God through whom the line uh, of, of blessing would come through. But guess what happens? Esau, the firstborn of the twins, doesn't get the birthright and he doesn't get the blessing because through uh, various different situations, Jacob tricks his brother out of these things and tricks his father in his older age, who's half blind by this point, by putting on animal skins and, I guess, rubbing animal blood on himself to smell like a hunter. I don't know. how I see people do that now with their first kill, you know, it's just kind of barbaric, but whatever. So you see that happening, right? And, and, and this is how Jacob gets the blessing and the birthright of the firstborn. And Jacob becomes then the one through whom the line of blessing will come and the line of Christ will come. Well, Esau didn't take kindly to that, so much so that he wanted to kill Jacob, and he probably would have if Rebekah hadn't said, Jacob, you need to leave town. And so she scoots her son off to Uncle Laban's house in a far-off town, and he stays with Uncle Laban for a while. But when he comes into town, he sees this beautiful woman. I mean, she is just like, ooga, kind of for, for Jacob, right? You know, you, the car, old cartoons where the eyes bug out. He is smitten with this woman. But he has no, he doesn't even have two nickels to rub together. And so he finds out that this woman is his Uncle Laban's daughter. Do you catch the incest here? Yeah, good times, right? So she would be a first cousin of Jacob. And what happens is he goes to his uh, Uncle Laban. He says, listen, um, I really like her. And, and I would do anything to marry her. Can I please marry Rachel? And Laban says, okay, well, what are your terms? Well, typically, a dowry would be exchanged, okay? And that would be worked out between two fathers. Well, Jacob's father's not there. Isaac is not there. And so Jacob has to work out his own dowry. And so he commits to working for Laban for seven years. One year would have been sufficient in labor wages, but this is how much he loves her. He said, I would work for seven years for you. 
in order to get her hand in marriage. And so Laban says, hey, that's a deal. All right. And he puts him to work. And after seven years lapses, guess what? Wedding day comes. The day he is waited on. He is stoked. He gets to marry the woman of his dreams. And the marriage festivities happen. And as was the custom of the day, the woman or the bride would be fully veiled. It would have been somewhat of a sheer material so she could see. Otherwise, she'd be running into things. Can you imagine? You know? No, it, she would have been... But, you wouldn't be able to really see her face. And so the whole time during the ceremony, the ceremony was one thing, but the marriage celebration would last a week. Seriously, good times. Talk about money. All right? And so the ceremony happens. She is still fully veiled. And fully veiled, they go into the tent of marriage to consummate the marriage. Do you know what that means? Do I need to go there? Okay. The act of marriage happens when the two become one physically in that tent of marriage, which was expected in that culture. And he wakes up the next morning. And my guess is he was drunk too that night or a little tipsy going into the tent of marriage. And guess what happens? It's the wrong woman. <laughs> Good times, right? I mean, how many of you have ever woken up next to the wrong lady that you married? I would hope you would say never, but it happened to Jacob. See, Uncle Laban had switched the women. He had two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Leah was the older of the two, and he put Leah under the veil. I think Jacob had met his match. He was a trickster himself. But he'd met someone who was even more of a trickster than he was. After the debacle, he wakes up the next morning, really lays in to Uncle Laban. What have you done to me? I, you, are you serious? This, I, there's no turning back now. We've consummated the marriage. They actually believed in the sanctity of the marriage, so much so that he wouldn't divorce her. And then Laban says, well, I'll tell you what. I know you love Rachel. I'll let you marry her too, but you have to work for me for seven more years. <laughs> and so, reluctantly, Jacob consents because he still loves Rachel. And so, after the seven days of the celebration of the marriage to Leah ends, he then marries Rachel and then works for seven more years. And this is where we pick up the story. Verse 31 of 29, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. What does it mean that she was unloved? Well, let me guess, if you were in Jacob's position and you got tricked into marrying Leah, who you did not want to marry, but you ended up also marrying Rachel, you would love Rachel more, I'm going to guess. Because you got tricked into marrying the other girl. When the Lord saw that she was unloved, Leah, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has noticed my misery and how my husband will, and now my husband will love me. Do you see this? My husband will love me now because I, I, I gave him his firstborn son. Soon she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, The Lord heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. 
how much time has to elapse at a bare minimum for her to get pregnant and have another son? Do you see what time is lapsing now? She got pregnant with Reuben, was pregnant for nine months, typically, gave birth to Reuben, and then she got pregnant again. So we're looking at about a year span. She gets, she gets pregnant again, and she's saying, okay, now maybe this year my husband will love me. God has heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. And then in verse 34, then she became pregnant a third time. We're now into year three more than likely. And given birth to another son. She named him Levi for she said, surely this time my husband will feel affection for me since I have given him three sons. And once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. Man, she's just a baby machine. These are sons. My guess is she's having daughters in between there too. Because daughters were not getting out of at that time. Once again, she became pregnant, gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, Now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. Do you see at this point she's resigning to the fact that her husband's just not going to love her? So she'll praise the Lord regardless. When Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, this is now chapter 30, she became jealous of her sister. And she pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. That's kind of fun, right? Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God, he asked. He's the only one who, he is the one who has kept you from having children. Ouch. Then Rachel told him, take my maid, Bilhah, and sleep with her. She will bear children for me, and through her, I can have a family too. Okay, so it was common in that day and age, even though it wasn't God-ordained, that you could have a child through a surrogate and not through in vitro fertilization. It was through giving your servant to your spouse, your husband, so that he can have children with her and that her offspring would by nature be your child and would carry on your lineage. Okay? As twisted as that might sound, it was a cultural thing in those days. And so Rachel says, okay, obviously I'm not able to have kids. Take my servant girl and sleep with her. And Jacob's like, well, alrighty. You bet I will. I mean... Honestly, come on, seriously? Jacob doesn't reject the notion. He just like, all right. And so Rachel gave her servant, to, uh, servant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Bilhah became pregnant and presented him with a son. Rachel named the son that her servant had given him Dan. For she said, God has vindicated me. He has heard my request and given me a son. Then Bilhah became pregnant again. And gave Jacob a second son. And Rachel named him Naphtali. For she said, I have struggled hard with my sister. And I'm winning. <laughs> Seriously. Soap opera stuff here. Meanwhile, Leah realized that she wasn't getting pregnant anymore. So she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And soon Zilpah presented him with a son and Leah named him Gad for she said 
how fortunate I am. <laughs> this is just crazy. I mean, seriously, are you following this? Okay. Because when I read this again this past week, I'm like, this is, you can't make this stuff. Well, I mean, I guess you could, but you really can't make this stuff. This is crazy stuff here. And so, um, then Zilpah gave Jacob a second son. How many kids does she, how many sons does she have by now? Have you been counting? Eight. And so, Leah, so Zilpah gave, uh, gave Jacob a second son, and Leah named him Asher, for she said, what joy is mine, now the other women will celebrate with me. One day during the wheat harvest, Reuben, you remember he's the oldest child by Leah, the oldest son, I should say, by Leah, um, he found some mandrakes growing in a field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Here's what a mandrake is, and it still exists today. It is a wild plant that grows out in the wilderness of the Middle East, and it has this like nickel-sized uh, diameter um, yellowish apple-like fruit. It looks like a little miniature yellow apple, and it's considered an aphrodisiac. Nobody really knows if it is or not, but some people say even today um, that when you eat it, it kind of gives you a dizziness about it, so it's like a drug, okay? It makes you feel euphoric and excited. Woohoo! So, so Reuben found these. He brings them back and he gives them to his mother. Now, Reuben, at this point in time, most scholars believe is about four or five years old. And so he's just kind of wandering out in the local fields around where they've been farming the ground and those kind of things. Finds some wild mandrakes, brings them back. Mama, look! And she's like, yeah, baby, because she found some aphrodisiac. She's not been able to have kids. And then, guess what starts to happen? One day, after that happened, Rachel begged Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah became angry, and she replied, wasn't it enough that you stole my husband? <laughs> That's like pot calling the kettle black, right? Because who did he love to begin with and want to marry? Do you see the rivalry going on here? Isn't it enough that you stole my husband? Now you want to steal my son's mandrakes too? Like taking candy from a baby, right? You're going to take my son's stuff? But Rachel answered, I will, let you, I will let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of your mandrakes. Jacob has now become a prostitute. <laughs> I will pay for him by giving you a night to sleep with him if you give me some of your mandrakes. So that evening, as Jacob was coming home from the fields, Leah went out to meet him. You must come sleep with me tonight. <laughs> oh, because it has an exclamation point on the end of it. I did it like that. I have paid for you. Listen to the word she uses. I have paid for you with some mandrakes that my son found. <laughs> uh, good times. Uh, so that night, she slept, he slept with Leah and God answered Leah's prayers. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a fifth son for Jacob. She named him Issachar, for she said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband as a wife. Look how twisted she has come in her thinking. God's rewarding me because I gave my servant Zilpah to Jacob 
to bear two sons for me, and now he's rewarding me. What twist? How can, and this is the thing, hear me out. We can give glory to God for things that God didn't do. And I've seen this happen over and over again, and oftentimes it's about sinful things. God blessed me through my sinful behavior. Praise God. Woo! That's what she's doing. I gave my servant to Jacob. He slept with her, and now God's rewarding me. What twisted, weird scenario do you have to be in to look at God's good and perfect ways to say God is blessing you for something that is not blessing worthy from God? And yet, in spite of their twisted ways of thinking, God is still working through them. So let's continue. God has rewarded me for giving my servant to, uh, to my husband as a wife. And then it says, she became pregnant again and gave birth to a sixth son for Jacob. She named him Zebulun, for she said, God has given me a good reward. And now my husband will treat me with respect, for I have given him six sons. We have ten sons at this point. Do you notice? Later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. The reason that Dinah is in there is because she comes up later in the story, and the author of this book wants you to understand that Dinah is related to this family as Jacob and Leah's daughter, and she gets raped later on in the story by a group of people in a different town, and it kind of unpacks that story later on. So that's the only reason she's named, because otherwise she wouldn't have been. Verse 22, then God remembers Rachel, remembered Rachel's plight. Has she been able to have children up to this point? No, through, through her servant, Bilhah, she had two children. But now God remembers her plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Do you want to guess what this son's name was? Joseph. She says, he is, God has removed my disgrace, she said, and she named him Joseph, for she said, may the Lord add yet another son to my family. And one else is not mentioned, but comes a few chapters later. Do you remember the youngest son of the family? Benjamin. Okay, he comes along. You say, you're counting this up, and you're like, but wait, there's some difference. I don't understand. The numbers don't... Well, not every one of Jacob's sons gets a nation or a tribe of his own in the promised land. Joseph has two sons who get territory in the promised land. You don't hear a territory named Joseph. So there's some differences later on in the story, just in case you were trying to figure out that in your mind right now. But here's what I want you to understand really quickly this morning is that favoritism within families breeds dysfunction, which leads to division. Would you agree that legitimate favoritism leads to division? Yes. We know that God plays no favorites. We read that over and over and over and over again in Scripture. God has no favorites. Even his chosen people who he chose from among all different people groups in the world were not favored by him in the sense that you would think of favoritism, but they were chosen as prophets, priests, and kings to the rest of the world. And they neglected the responsibility. And so one prophet, priest, and king came from that line and did perfectly what they were unable to do. 
and became the representative for all people. So let's look at what favoritism causes really quickly. Favoritism causes feelings of rejection. Have you ever felt rejected before? Have you ever legitimately been rejected before? It's painful, isn't it? You feel lower than, smaller than. You feel crushed under the weight of rejection. When it's a friend or a family member or a spouse or a child, it's an awful feeling. Leah, Jacob's first wife, was a victim of her father's deception as much as Jacob was. Think of what happened. Laban takes Leah, who, who she knows that Jacob loves Rachel, and Leah's playing the part in her dad's play to trick Jacob. Now, you could say, well, she's part and parcel. She's an accomplice to that. But in that day and age, to reject the fathers of the home, the patriarch of the home, to reject what they are telling you to do if you were a child is a dishonorable thing. My guess is Leah felt caught between a rock and a hard place. Now, yes, she had the freedom to say, no, I will not do that, but she would incur the wrath of her father Laban. And at this point in time, we know Laban is not a great guy. He's as, as much of a deceiver and a bad person as Jacob ever dreamed of being. He's just not a great guy. And so she's being used by her father for his purposes because he knows he could trick Jacob into working for him longer, getting free labor. Would you feel rejected from your father if he was forcing you to do something like this? Yeah, I think you might. Obedience to her father's plan was expected. Biblical scholar and author Joyce Baldwin writes this. Listen, though Leah became Jacob's first wife, she was not the beloved wife. She was only too aware of, and even the birth of her four sons did little to comfort her. Do you see what she named them and what the meaning of their names were? They were all reflections of the feelings of rejection from her husband. Now my husband will love me. Now my husband will show affection toward me. You know, sex is not always affectionate. Sometimes it's just a rudimentary act. And she longed for the loving embrace of her husband, and all she got was just the mere sex act. You could see that in how she names her children and the feelings that she has over the course of those years. She feels lost, lonely, rejected. And though God did not ordain polygamy nor offer it up as an alternate way to start a family, he worked with the great amount of dysfunction that it caused to ultimately steer human history toward his final purposes. See, here's one of the things. This doesn't, let me, let me clear, the, clear up what might be confusing in your mind right now. Because you might be saying, okay, well, that means that I can continue to do what I want to do, and God's still going to use me regardless. Be careful with that. Because there's a line and a limit to God's patience. He, he is very long-suffering. But if you willingly continue in a pattern of behavior that separates you from him... There may be a day when that still small voice 
you don't hear anymore. But God can take the messes we make and turn them into beauty. He can take situations that we, we cause to happen that we selfishly desire, and he can say, that is not my best for you, but I can still use what you bring to the table. And you see this over and over again in the Old Testament and all the way into the New Testament. God takes the messes of people's lives and redeems them for his purposes. Do you know what God did for Leah? Who does Jesus find his lineage tied to? Which one of her sons? Judah. Jesus becomes the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah is the kingly tribe. It's where the kings come from. Do you see how he redeemed her story? Even in spite of all of the junk? He brings her to a place of honor, even despite the dishonor that had surrounded her and her family of origin. Favoritism also promotes unhealthy competition. This one I stumbled with for a little bit. I honestly almost didn't put this point in there because I think there's a healthy sense of competition that drives good stuff. But would you also agree with me that there's an unhealthy competition that exists in the world? The dog-eat-dog kind of mentality. I'm going to take somebody out at the knees so I can get a step up the ladder a little bit more, right? It's deceitful. It's hateful. Well, what we see in this scenario is not a healthy sense of competition. And when I start to really, and the reason I almost didn't put this point in there was because I don't believe competition is going to be in heaven. And he, let, me, let me tell you why. There's no need for competition in heaven. There just isn't. When you think about it, I mean, okay, we, we like the healthy competition to play in sports and we like to win. That, that's different. We'll probably play sports up there. But the reality of competition where one needs to get ahead of another, there's really no need for that in God's kingdom in heaven. So that's why I almost didn't put it in here, but I thought, let me explain Clearly, there is a healthy sense of competition, an unhealthy sense of competition. The unhealthy sense of competition is what was going on between Leah and Rachel and even their servants. Lee Haynes, biblical scholar, writes this. By this time, Reuben was about four or five years old. Do you remember the Mandrake story? He would have been about four or five years old. And then they start bartering for sleeping a night with Jacob. Again, how twisted is that? I would even contend today that in polygamous families across the face of the earth in the 21st century, this kind of behavior happens. It cannot not happen when you share this kind of oneness and intimacy that a marriage between one man and one woman should be. It poses major problems. This is why adultery can be bad. This is why fornication, being sexually active before marriage can be bad because if you're sharing yourself with multiple different people throughout the course of life, just trying on a shoe to see how it fits, you're objectifying the person you're sleeping with. You're trying to see if you're compatible. It's like kicking the tires on a car. 
Marriage is a sacred union, never to be dismissed as something other than holy as God created it to be. This is why there are such strict regulations in God's law against sexual immorality. This unhealthy sense of competition continued to drive a wedge of division between Rachel and Leah, who grew up together as sisters. And now this situation is driving them apart. And lastly, favoritism produces feelings of inadequacy. When you feel like somebody else is favored over you, do you feel inadequate or insecure? It usually tends to drive that, doesn't it? Let's look at how it affected Rachel, Jacob, and Leah. Insecurity and feelings of inadequacy are all around this narrative. Rachel, Jacob, and Leah are all caught up in the inability to please one another. Do you catch that? They, none of them can please one another. For Rachel, her barrenness must have felt like an unbearable weight around her neck. In those day and age, in that day and age, to not be able to bear children was considered a curse by God. That you had done something to incur the wrath of God on you that he would make you barren. And do you notice, <coughs> excuse me, how many people in the lineage or the line of the holy families of the Bible were actually stricken with barrenness? Think of the first two Hebrews, Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah did the same thing, didn't she? Take my servant girl, Hagar, and sleep with her, and through her, she will bear sons for me. And do you remember God's response to that? Nope, he's not the chosen one that I promised for you. I'll still bless him. He's a victim of his current circumstances. But he's not the son I promised for you, nor the descendants through whom I plan to bless the world. So in due time, he gave Rachel a son and named him Isaac. Did you know Rebecca, Isaac and Rebecca? And yes, Rebecca was a family member of Isaac. This happened a lot in those days. But Rebecca was unable to have children for a while. And then God opened her womb, as the scripture says, and she gave birth to two sons, twins. And now Rachel, the favored wife, is barren, unable to have children, but at just the right time, God opens her as well, and she has children. Rachel carried this albatross on her for so long, and it diminished her worth in her own eyes. And she felt that it diminished her worth in Jacob's eyes, which is why she demanded of him, give me children or I'll die. Now consider Jacob. He feels inadequate. The woman he loves that he truly is smitten with is unable to have children. And if you feel this way towards your spouse, you know, you, I'd do anything for you. I would take the pain from you. I wish I could do that. Jacob, as manly of a man as he may seem to be, is unable to meet the needs of the woman he loves. And so he feels inadequate. Yes, in his own mind, he favors her above Leah, rightly or wrongly, but he's in this mess because of the trickery of his uncle Laban. And so are the girls, Leah and Rachel. But he finds himself in a position to do nothing about it. And see, 
Let's be honest. Rachel must have known the problem lay with her because Jacob could have children with Leah and the servant girls. And so what do we do when we feel like the odds are stacked against us? We project outwardly, don't we? We take our wrath and our feelings of inadequacy and we project those out toward others as if it's other people's fault. And maybe no, it's no fault of anyone at all. It's just this, you're a victim of circumstances at this point. God gets the blame like this a lot. God, why haven't you fixed this, done this? Why haven't you fixed this, this illness, this problem, this sickness? My barrenness. And God gets rejected because he doesn't do things according to our plan. And what about Leah? <laughs> we know she felt inadequate. Undeniably the most hurt person in this love triangle. She feels inadequate over and over again. She has children from the different sexual unions with Jacob, but seemingly his heart never warms to her. She's providing him what society has told her makes her a person of worth, a baby-making machine to provide her husband with boys upon boys upon boys, and it's not turning his head toward her. What is she to do? Oh, the twisted web that, web that polygamy and favoritism weaves. So how do I conclude this this morning? <laughs> what do we do with this? One final thing should be said about the problematic practice of polygamy, just to kind of recap this before we close. Um, Wilbur Williams, biblical, author, or biblical scholar and author, writes, While God did not inspire the writers of the Old Testament to condemn multiple marriages, the writings certainly show excuse me, the disasters that resulted from them. Jacob would live to, a great, uh, would live to regret his demotion of Leah and her sons to secondary status. Later on in the story, who does Jacob, or who does Jacob make a coat for? Which one becomes his favorite son? Joseph. See, favoritism continues on beyond the marriage and unto the sons. And the son of his favorite wife becomes his favorite son of all the other sons. So much so that the brothers become jealous of Jacob because they see that he is legitimately being treated in favor above all the others. Even the firstborn, Reuben. So what is he to do? What does Jacob do? What do the brothers do? What does Joseph do? Well, you know they sell him into slavery. They plan to kill him first off and make it look like an accident. You ever said that? I'll kill you and I'll make it look like an accident. Well, they tried to do that, but then they realized, no, 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 no. Let's not do that. Let's not let his blood be on our hands. And so they sold him into slavery. And the whole, the majority of the book of Genesis is written about Joseph. But we know Joseph isn't through whom the Messiah would come. Pretty amazing stuff. Leah was rejected, and we see this favoritism continuing. God always responds to a faithful and obedient heart, but when looking at the fallible people of Genesis, we see that his will is accomplished in spite of their sinfulness and not always because of their goodness. Do you see this? 
His grace is made available not on the basis of human merit, but rather on the basis of his overriding mercy. And this leads me to the ultimate conclusion today of the consequences wrought by multiple marriages, and more specifically, favoritism within families. Favoritism is not a part of the kingdom of God. God doesn't love some of his children more than others. We have a hard time understanding this. Well, God must love Billy Graham and, and Mother Teresa more than he loved me. No. God's love for you is not diminished by who you are, the titles you hold, or the positions that you're in. God's love for you is based on his love for all of humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There is no conditional statement in the matter of God's love in that verse, but there is a conditional statement in the matter of belief and salvation. God's love exists for all people at all times, and it continues to hold an open hand out in salvation. The reality is, it's upon each individual to choose to receive that love. And many people don't. They reject it. And they go through the motions and they feel this utter despair because they believe in some twisted sense that God favors others more than themselves. Or they don't believe in God at all. They reject any notion that there is a true God who lives, breathes, and has essence and existence in a timeless way. Is there favoritism in your family? How have you handled it? Have you felt feelings of rejection, unhealthy competition, and inadequacy? How have you allowed these things to take root in you and cause you to respond the way the world does? Or have you risen above these feelings and reactions to find your worth in Christ Jesus? See, here's the crux of the issue. Leah was looking to Jacob to fulfill her Rachel was looking to Jacob to fulfill her. Bilhah and Zilpah were victims of consequence. Jacob realized he couldn't fulfill either one of those two. But who was the one that could? God. See, we can't manipulate God to work according to our fashion. Leah tried to figure that out. God you'll do this. If, if you give me another son, then maybe he'll love me. No. No. You love me in spite of what I can produce. And because of that, I'm going to love you in return, and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. As our worship team comes forward today to close us out, as a parent, maybe the question is that you have favorites, and if you do, Maybe it's time to make an adjustment. Doesn't mean that you can't treat your children differently because each child is different. You relate to each child differently. But you know what I'm talking about, I think, right? We tend to relate to one of our kids oftentimes more than the others because maybe they're closer to our personality type. Kids pick up on things very easily. Be very careful how you love the people closest to you and make sure that they understand that their love is never diminished for who they are or what they do, but your love for them is unconditional, selfless, and sacrificial.
I hope my kids understand that. I hope my wife understands that. Our love is an example and a reflection of God's love for us. And we should be loving those the way God first loved us through Jesus Christ and gave himself for us. Followers of Christ, we are to love as God has loved. And that's the end of the message today. And I hope that that becomes a part of the ingrained habit of your being. That as you leave this place, wherever you go, maybe you need to make some phone calls and say, you know, I know I haven't loved you the way that you've needed to be loved in the past or even in the present. And I see the error of my ways and I'm going to work to change things. And don't just say you're going to work to change things, actually change things. Begin to love in an active way, in a way that others can receive. I've heard this, let me, can I give you one last caveat? <laughs> I've heard people say, well, this is just how I am. Love it or leave it. That is not a Christian response. If you're a believer in Christ, you are to love and make strides in loving in the ways that God loves others, not in the way you want to love them. This is why we are told to love our enemies. Okay? It's not a matter of whether we feel it or want to do it a certain way. We love because we were first loved by God. The lazy way out is to not be intentional. So be intentional with how you love. Let's pray. El no is right. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your mercies, which are new every morning. And God, we know that you love each and every one of us equally the same. And that, Father, you don't like sin. Actually, you hate sin in this world. And God, because we've been marred and affected by sin in this world, we oftentimes wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, rulers of this dark world. And Lord, help us to wrestle against those things with the full armor of God on our person. As we go with the, word, the sword of the Lord, which, or the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the Lord. Remind us that the word of the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us <laughs> and that that word was Jesus and that we go with him by our side through the power of the Holy Spirit and we go with the love that he came with for us forgive us where we've shown favorites where we've competed in an unhealthy manner forgive us where we've rejected others or Forgive those that have rejected us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to see bigger and greater things beyond our feelings and emotions of the moment into the deeper recesses of the heart of who you are so that we can reflect your glory and your love to the rest of the world around us. Help us to love uniquely those who are different than us. Help us to know how to love others in ways that they can receive that love. And help us to rise above all the muck and the mire and the challenges that we face in this world that try to get us to compete for the world's attention. Father, we love you. You are good and holy and righteous. 
We look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith, and we surrender to you this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.